But Jehoshaphat also, also said to the king of Israel, First, seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, and asked them, Shall I go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. He's Micaiah, son of Imlah. King should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria, with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, the son of Kenanah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth-Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The, messengers who had gone, the messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. When he arrived, the king asked him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me? Only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth-Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this and another that. Finally a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means? the Lord asked. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, went up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he went from me to speak to you, he asked. Micaiah replied, You will find out on the day you go to hide in an inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, Take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, This is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, If you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, Mark my words, all you people. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless our, our study of it. Our God, we ask that you would breathe on us your Holy Spirit that you would help us to see in your word what you want us to see, that you would use the words that I would speak to communicate truth, and Lord, in any area where there might be falsehood, that you would blot them from the minds of the hearers, that you would forgive our sins because they are many, and that you might see in us the righteousness of Christ. Open our eyes to see these things, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So, so what is it about the, the truth that makes us, makes us want it, or at least, as if, at least pretend as if we want it on the one hand, and yet oftentimes ignore it on the other? Right? For example, I want you to imagine that you worked at Bridgewater Capital. Now, Bridgewater Capital is the largest hedge fund in the, in the world. That's a type of investment firm that, that has very little restrictions on the type of investments that they that they make. And Bridgewater manages about $150 billion. It was founded in 1975 by a guy named Ray Dalio. And, and, and one of the things that makes the culture at Bridgewater distinctive is what Dalio calls radical transparency. In other words, everyone at Bridgewater is encouraged, actually they're required, to speak freely and publicly about the ideas and the performance of everyone else at Bridgewater from the most junior associate all the way up to the chairman and the chief investment officer, Ray Dahlia. They actually have an app, an electronic tool, that they use to track the comments and the ideas that people make so that other people can then publicly rate them and comment on them. Now, Ray Dahlia shares about a time when someone at the firm, who, someone who works with him, a guy named Jim, sent him an email one afternoon. This is what Jim wrote. He said, Ray, you deserve a D- for your performance today in the meeting. You did not prepare at all well because there was no way that you could have been that disorganized. Now imagine writing that. Imagine writing to the, the founder and the chairman of your company, in this case a guy who himself is worth about $20 billion. You write him a note one afternoon and you say, Ray, your performance in the meeting this morning, D minus. And, and not only does Ray get it, does, does he see it, but everyone in the company sees it too. And imagine that Ray's reaction is this. Imagine, this is, what, this is what Ray's reaction is. He says, isn't that great? I need feedback like that. And this is why he says he needs it. Listen, he says, I want to make the best decisions possible. And I know that I don't have all the answers in my head. I think that one of the greatest tragedies of man is that people have opinions in their head that they act on that are wrong. Now, how do I know that the wrong person isn't me? Now, it would take a Harvard Business Review level kind of discussion to evaluate the practicality of making a universal principle out of this radical transparency in, in every organization and every situation. And frankly, given what I think we understand about the universal condition of humanity, I have, I have misgivings about universally applying that in every organization at, at every time. But for our purposes, and given what we just read in 1 Kings 22, there's something fascinating, isn't there, about a leader who is willing to invite people to speak truth to him regardless of how it makes him feel. Because he wants to make, at the end of the day, the best decision possible on behalf of the people that he's leading. Doesn't sound at all like King Ahab and his advisors in 1 Kings 22, does it? Ahab says he wants the, the truth, but he doesn't really want the truth. And so he rejects the truth when he actually hears the truth. The only problem is the truth is still the truth, and he can't actually escape it and make it untrue. Did you follow all that? He wants the truth, he rejects the truth, but the truth is still the truth. And I think we're actually the same. Kevin introduced us last week to King Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16. Now we're at the end of his life in 1 Kings chapter 22. And, and for a part of the Bible that moves through centuries of, of history, right, taking that much time to talk about 22, just 22 years of one king, when other kings, they just get barely a, a couple of lines, must mean there's something pretty significant here. 
And if one of the themes of this, this period of fallen kingdoms is to demonstrate for us the failure of human kings and, and human kingdoms, then there must be significant, something significant that God wants us to see about Ahab. And one of those things that we see right here is how we respond when we're confronted with the truth. Because I think we're the same way. Right? So three headings. We want the truth. We reject the truth. But the truth is still the truth. Go back to 1 Kings 22. And I'll spend a little bit more time here sort of setting the scene and making sure that we're, we're clear on the story. Right? Ahab is the king of Israel. That's the collection of northern tribes with its capital in Samaria. And it's been about three years now since, since an all-out war between Ahab and the Arameans, modern-day Syria. And the, the leader of Aram is Ben-Hadad. And, and see, see, Aram had taken a sizable portion of Israel's territory from Ahab's father, the king of Israel at the time, Omri. Now, Ahab had come back and he had defeated Ben-Hadad, and the, Lord, and the Lord's instruction was that Ben-Hadad was to be put to death, that he was to be, to be killed in judgment for his rebellion against God's people. But Ahab thought he knew better, thought he could do it, thought he could do it better, thought he would strike a deal instead with, with Ben-Hadad, and so he did. He would let Ben-Hadad live, and in exchange, Ben-Hadad would return the cities that, that, that had belonged to Ahab and, and Israel. This is all back in 1 Kings chapter 20. And one of those cities was Ramoth-Gilead. Right? But see, the problem was, at least for Israel, the problem was Ramoth-Gilead was probably located along a strategic trade route between the Red Sea and Damascus, which was in Aram. And so the king of Aram, now safely back in his own territory, is sort of dragging his feet a little bit on, 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 on completing his promise to return the city to, to Israel. And Ahab is miffed about it. Right? He's tired of this. So he picks up the red phone on his desk, and he calls King Jehoshaphat in Judah. And he says, now, a lot has happened. Right? But, you know, we got, we got two kingdoms now, but we're still within about 100 years or so from Solomon and the United Kingdom of Israel. So despite the significant differences between the two kingdoms, they are at some level still considering themselves to be, to be brothers. And, and, and there's probably no more natural place then for the king the king of Israel, Ahab, to turn than Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And so Ahab says, Jehosh, it's Ahab. We got a problem. Can you help me out? King of Aram has one of my cities, and I'm going to go take it back. Would you be willing to help me? Come and let's talk about it. And Jehoshaphat apparently says yes. And it says in verse 2 that he goes down to, to see Ahab. And Ahab asks him, will you go with me to retake Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat says, I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Which is just a fancy kingly way of saying yes. And I think it's appropriate for us to see something of, of Jehoshaphat's character here. We don't learn a ton about him right here, but it says at the end of chapter 22 that Jehoshaphat was one of the few good kings of the period who it says did, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Jehoshaphat wasn't perfect, of course, and, and it could actually be that one of his greatest historical mistakes is connected with the alliance that he's making with, with Ahab here, right? About, who's, about whom the Bible's judgment is clearly not favorable when it comes to Ahab. Because it was an alliance that was sealed by the marriage of Jehoshaphat's son to Ahab's daughter. And as Kevin will show us next week, this caused some serious problems down the, down the road. But for now, I think it's appropriate to see something admirable in Jehoshaphat's loyalty to the wayward nation of Israel and to the 
the wayward King Ahab. I think he thought something good could come of this. Maybe he saw an opportunity to, to influence Ahab, to point him to the truth of God. And the reason why I think we might be able to conclude that is because after Jehoshaphat's statement of commitment to Ahab in verse 4, it says in verse 5 that Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, first, let's seek the counsel of the Lord. Before we go into battle, why don't we ask God's input here? And interestingly, we don't see Ahab protest. At some level, I think there probably was a sincere desire on Ahab's part to, to seek a supernatural blessing for what he was about to do. It was common in the time for Near Eastern kings to, to seek the will of their gods before they went into to battle. And, and so, at least at some level, I think there's a, a sincerity to it. Lives are at stake. The, the fate of the kingdom is at stake. The reputation of the king is, it, is at stake. Even an evil king then would presumably have an interest in the truth of whether or not what he was about to do was a good idea or a bad idea. So Ahab calls for some prophets, and he gets about 400 of them together. And he asks, should I go to war against Ramoth Gilead? And they all tell him what they know he wants to hear. Go, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Now, one of them, Zedekiah, it's kind of funny, we read later in verse 11, he actually, he actually turns it into a little skit. He makes some horns out of iron, and he pretends that he's an animal with horns goring the Arameans. It's pretty silly, but, but in a way you can understand. First of all, these guys aren't real prophets of the, of the Lord, so they don't really know what's going to happen. And if you're going to make something up to a ruthless tyrant king, are you going to say something good or are you going to say something bad? Especially when you know the answer that he wants to hear. Right? It's like Adolf Hitler saying to one of his advisors, I kind of like my mustache, don't you? How do you answer? What do you say to that? No, I think it looks like a caterpillar died on your lip. No. What are you going to say? You're going to say, love it. Love it. Right? This isn't Bridgewater Capital here. Nobody wanted to give Ahab a D-. minus. But then Jehoshaphat, you got to love it, verse 7, he says, is there not a prophet of the Lord here that we can ask? In other words, you got any real prophets of God around? Now, Ahab if you go back and you look at the last few chapters, isn't actually, actually on speaking terms with very many real prophets of God. But he says in verse 8, to his credit, he said, yeah, there's one guy, Micaiah, son of Imlah, but I hate him. He never says anything good about me. Jehoshaphat scolds him for his attitude, and so Ahab summons Micaiah. Again, though, I think we have in Ahab here a somewhat reluctant, but nonetheless a real seeker of the of the truth. He's willing to invite this true prophet of God into, into his presence. Because here's the interesting thing as it relates to, to Ahab. Micaiah's first response to Ahab in verse 15 was to sarcastically say the same thing that all the other prophets had said. Ahab asks, should I go? And Micaiah essentially says, sure, go ahead, attack and be victorious. Right? But Ahab doesn't just toss him out. In fact, he seeks he seems to know that the answer he got from Micaiah isn't the truth. Right, look at verse 16. Right? How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Right? In other words, at least at some level, Ahab knows the difference between truth and untruth, and he knows that at that moment he wasn't hearing the truth, and he wants to hear the actual truth. Now, this is at the heart of my contention that we should see something of ourselves in Ahab at this point. Because like Ahab, I think we all want the truth, sort of. Think about yourself. On the one hand, when it comes to, to truth, we want to know it, right? Because we don't really want to live in, in deception, particularly if there's something 
wrong with us. Imagine if you have a, a medical condition that's being negatively impacted by your diet, for example. Right? Do you want to know the truth or not? Well, on some level, you don't, right? Because, because it might be indicting of how you've lived before. It might threaten your identity. Any kind of change brings a certain sense of risk and uncertainty. And so on one level, you don't. But you really do, if you think about it, want to know the, the truth before it's too late to do something about it. Right? Now, those kinds of things, I mean, as important as they are in individual circumstances, if you're the one with that medical condition who's that's being in negatively impacted by, by things that you're doing. They're, they're important, but, but in, the cosmic, in the sense of cosmic questions, they're, they're smaller matters. And, and when it comes to the bigger questions of life, I think it's even more true. The, 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 the questions of the, of the universe, right? Why do I exist? Right? Why do I hurt? Where is my hope? In all of those questions, I think that at our core, we desperately do want answers to those those questions. Our, our heart seeks a greater sense of meaning and, and significance, to know the correct diagnosis of what's gone wrong with the world. We want to know where we came from, whether our lives will, will matter. How do we function in the midst of, of life's uncertainty? How do we love others? How do we raise our children? We want to know the truth. We want to know the answer. And yet, our seeking of the truth and our finding of it runs into a problem. Because we're not instinctively like Jehoshaphat in this story, suggesting that we seek truth from God. We're Ahab. Right? And the reason is that while we, we want the truth, we fear it. We fear it because like Ahab, it threatens our sovereignty. Right? Ahab, in Ahab's case, is sovereignty over a nation. But in our case, it's sovereignty over our own lives. See, if we bow to anything that is outside of us, and say that that's true, then we, then we have to acknowledge that it's greater than us. Anything outside of us, we have to bow to it if it's, if it's true. We have to conform our will to its, and as a result, we have to cede our sovereignty. So that's the first point. We want the truth, but only sort of because, point number two, we reject the truth. Micaiah shoots, shoots straight. Right? He's, the guy, he's, he's the kind of guy who's willing to tell Hitler his mustache looks silly. And so he says to Ahab, okay, Here's what I see. This is verse 17. I see, I see the people of Israel on a hillside with no shepherd, no one to lead them because their king is dead. He says to Ahab, in a, in, a, in a roundabout way, he says, look, going into battle is going to result in your death. And Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat in verse 18 and said, do you see now why I don't like this guy around? And then Micaiah goes on to say, he says that all the other prophets that he's been hearing from, they're liars, right? Zedekiah with his horns, all 400 of them, they're deceiving Ahab, and they're telling him only what he wants to hear. But here's the thing. Ahab ultimately doesn't care. He rejects the truth that's offered by Micaiah. He throws, throws Micaiah in jail, and he decides to attack Ramoth-Gilead anyway. But why? Why does Ahab reject God's truth? Now, just a, just a little parenthesis here. Did it trouble you at all when you read verses 19 to 23? Right? The vision that Micaiah relates of God sending the lying spirit into the mouths of the other prophets. Does it make you wonder, is God, is God really responsible for deceit here? Is the reason that Ahab rejected truth because God told him a, a lie? And the answer is no. Right? God does not, he doesn't do evil. This is, this is a vision that's a, a parable. It's a parabolic vision. It's a story 
that Micaiah is relating to convey a truth. And, and the truth is, in fact, that God sovereignly sits over top of and behind the words even of the false prophets. That they say nothing by, by accident. Even Ahab's lackey prophets are ultimately under the sovereignty of God and only allowed to say what he decrees to allow them to say. So yes, he's in charge of their lying. But only to stand as a contrast to the truth that he's telling Ahab through Micaiah. Right? Now, how, how do you know that God is not, isn't, isn't trying to deceive Ahab by some secret plot? Because it isn't a secret plot against someone when you tell him the secret. And Micaiah starts his account of the whole vision by saying in verse 19, hear the word of the Lord. Right? God's telling him about the, about the deception. So why, why does Ahab then still reject the truth? Didn't Ahab want the truth? Well, yeah. But as we said, only sort of. He wanted to know it when it confirmed his own will. When, when the truth matched his view of truth, he wanted it. And when it doesn't, then he rejects it, throws it aside. And aren't we the same way? The truth of God is ultimately that he is sovereign and we are not. We are not our own rulers. We're created dependent beings. And that's not a bad thing. That's, nothing, that's not something that we should lament because we are created with dignity in the image of that God who created us. And as a result, we have, we, we have intentional purpose and meaning in our lives. We've been designed to experience true, lasting joy and satisfaction. But we get none of those things when we make ourselves the false king of our own lives. See, because God is the only true sovereign. And that assumption is at the center of all of our sin. The assumption that we get to define meaning for ourselves, that we get to define truth rather than the creator. That's the sin of Adam and Eve. And the sin of Adam and Eve is the sin of, of Ahab. I've heard your truth, but I will reject it because I believe that I am better qualified to decide for myself what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. But for all the arrogant bravado, we want the truth, point number one. We reject the truth, point number two. But for all the arrogance, the uncomfortable fact for Ahab and for us is point number three, truth is still the truth. Now, many people, in fact, a majority, if you look at most survey results, many people claim that truth is, is relative. In other words, truth is not absolute. It depends on your circumstances. But it's helpful to remember that practically no one actually behaves like that. No one really behaves like, like truth is relative, that, that you can decide it for yourself however you, however you want, whenever you want. Let me illustrate it like this. Now, in general, the way the preaching kind of works here at Faith is that only Kevin is allowed to make hockey references, and I generally stick to baseball. Right? But both of us in the past have made reference to various aspects of the tragic death of the Flyers goalie Pelly Limburg in 1985. Now, Kevin is allowed to talk about a Flyers goalie because he, as we learned last week if you were here, is a loyal hockey defenseman, even to this day, willing to sacrifice himself in the defense of his goalie. If you didn't get it, then you can go back and you can listen to it last week. But it was a brilliant confession on the part of our senior pastor. And me, I'm allowed to, to reference Pelly Lindbergh because I grew up a mile and a half from the intersection where the accident occurred that took his life. Now, you can look up the sad details some other time, but in summary, Lindbergh, having had too much to drink one night after a game, crashed his very expensive sports car 
into a concrete retaining wall in front of a school at 80 miles an hour and died as a result of the, the injuries. Now, I know the spot very well because Somerdale Road is a main road that's traveled frequently by, by, by everyone in the area. The problem, though, is that right at the point when you're traveling on Somerdale Road, right where the accident occurred, the road bends. Right? Now, as long as you bend with it, you stay on the road. But if you don't, you drive straight into the wall. Now, Pelly's car never turned. Now, I'm not trying to make light of, of Pelly Lindbergh, but think about this for a minute. If I'm driving the same road, which I've probably done hundreds of times, right, I can think with the greatest of sincerity that the road at that point goes straight. Right? But my sincerity doesn't matter. Right? My personal preference might be to not waste the to turn the steering wheel when I get to that curve. But I had better turn it. Why? Because truth is the truth. And the truth is, the road bends. I can choose to ignore the truth. I can, because I'm under the influence of something that is crippling my senses, be blinded to the truth, but the truth is still the truth. And if I don't recognize that, I crash. Now, you say, that's the physical realm. And it might be true in the physical realm, but not in the moral realm. There, truth is, isn't always really truth. It's there it is more relative, right? Well, again, philosophers like to say things like that, but no one really behaves like that. Right? Pick a, pick a place on the, uh, whatever your place is on the ideological spectrum and tell me that there aren't things that you passionately believe are true. Right? Is racism wrong? Is abortion wrong? Is sexual harassment wrong? Is abuse of authority wrong? Is the murder of the innocent in genocide wrong? Now, the point at this moment is not to debate any one of those particular issues, but to observe that as soon as you call something right or wrong, as soon as you call something true or untrue, then you're assuming a standard, a measuring stick by which you make that judgment. Now, our culture will tell us that we are our own measuring stick, and that's what Ahab assumed. Thanks for the insight, Micaiah, but I choose to think that some road is going straight, and I'm going to Ramoth Gilead. But truth is the truth. And the truth is, when you encounter the reality of God, you bend to that truth, or you crash. And Ahab crashes, because he chose not to bend, because he was under the influence, intoxicated by his own power and blind to the, the truth. Now, you can finish reading the chapter later, but Ahab chooses anyway to go into, into battle, despite the warning. And despite his best efforts, He's killed, just like Micaiah had predicted, just like two prophets before Micaiah had predicted. That's Ahab. Now, what about us, though? Well, we crash, too, if we don't listen to the, to the prophet. One of the main themes of this section of the Bible, one of the main themes, perhaps the primary theme, of the historical period of the kings of Israel and the kings of, of Judah is that we need, we desperately need, a greater king an ultimate king, a perfect king to lead us, a shepherd king who will care for his sheep. That's what Micaiah saw. He saw Israel without a shepherd and the sheep without anyone to lead them. Now, it's all intended. That's why we're doing this this winter. All of this is intended to make us hungry for the Messiah. God wants us to see in these historical accounts and, and, and to gain an appropriate dissatisfaction with any king except for Jesus. That's the point that we've been making several times already in the series. It's the point that we'll continue to, 
to make. But this account doesn't just point us to an ultimate king. It points us to an ultimate prophet. And in the same way, at the same time, an ultimate priest in a sense as well. See, Micaiah was willing to accept the consequences, the prophet Micaiah, was willing to accept the consequences of Ahab's rejection of the truth. Now, for him, that meant prison. But centuries later, when Jesus stood before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, John 18, and he speaks to the man with the greatest human authority in the entire region, Jesus tells this Roman governor that the reason why he came into the world was to testify to the truth. Jesus stands there and says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Now that is quite a claim. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that that anyone who does not listen to him is not on the side of truth. Now Micaiah, the prophet, when he stood up in front of the kings, he was ridiculed, struck across the face, and led to suffering because of his proclamation of the truth. And so ultimately, finally, and sufficiently was, was Jesus when he stood before authority, ridiculed, slapped across the face even, and led to suffering. See, he was the, he was the ultimate prophet who spoke truth boldly before the power of, of his day. And he was the priest whose suffering that followed provided the, the perfect atoning sacrifice. Now, the application from all of this for us could be Be like Micaiah. Be like Jesus. Stand up for truth. When you face opposition, be willing to accept suffering that may come along with it. And that's a good takeaway. It's not a a wrong takeaway. And perhaps Christians of our age, it's a a timely word. But instead of placing yourself immediately in the role of Micaiah and Jesus in this story, let me just encourage you one last time to consider yourself as playing the part of Ahab or Pilate in the story. Both of these guys claimed at some level to be seeking the truth, and both ultimately rejected the truth, even though the truth was right there in front of them. And for you, this morning, the truth is here, right there in front of you. Jesus, the one who himself claimed to be that truth, the one, the one who claimed to be the one for whom we all long, the, to be the reason why we're here, to be the Savior for the suffering that we experience, to be the hope for the future joy that we long to experience. We long for truth. And Jesus said, when you're longing for truth, what you're longing for is me. And so if you've never bowed the knee to that prophet Jesus, priest Jesus, king Jesus, then today is your opportunity. Or for many of you, let me just phrase it a little bit bit differently. What area of your life are you struggling to submit to the truth of God? Something that he says to do that you would prefer not to do? Something that he says to believe that you would prefer to think differently about? Some decision that you face, maybe, your own Ramoth Gilead, where your first instinct is not to go and inquire of the Lord. Now, I'm not minimizing the, the difficulty of that. In fact, what I'd like to tell, tell you is what I'd like to say is that as you stand in the throne room with the prophet, I want you to see the character of this, of this prophet Jesus and how he doesn't just proclaim truth to us. He stands there with us, ultimately sacrificing himself for us. This prophet Jesus is not leaving you in the throne room alone. Micaiah, the prophet, stood in the throne room of two kings and spoke the truth to Ahab, told them about sheep that had no shepherd. Jesus stood before the Roman governor and spoke truth to him. But even more, Jesus stands, even today, in the eternal throne room 
for us as our sacrificial lamb and as our eternal shepherd. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 17, the Bible tells us what that heavenly throne room looks like. It gives us a description. And it tells us that we have a shepherd there that will lead us to the eternal satisfaction and joy and that that, satisfac- that that shepherd is for us also our sacrificial lamb. This is what it says in Revelation 7. It says, the lamb, For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the prophet that we serve, and he speaks the truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that despite at some level a very sincere desire exists in us to know truth that even in our rejection of it, you have come to us speaking plainly, clearly, boldly, and yet in Jesus, the great shepherd, lovingly and gently. And you call us to come to you call us to recognize you as the great truth of the universe. And so, Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we would see you for who you are, that we would bow our wishes to yours so that we might experience the joy and the satisfaction that comes from recognizing you as creator and Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, let us come boldly before the throne in worship, for we come in Jesus' name. Amen.